As, uh, as all, most of you, or probably all of you know, I am not Tony, nor am I Nathan, the normal preachers here at Redeemer. And uh, so they, you know, Tony and Nathan are out on a trip. They're having a good time uh, worshiping the Lord and uh, enjoying one another's company. And so Stephen and I were left back to have the, uh, Stephen and I were left to lead the service today. And I'm preaching as someone who is under care in the PCA. So that means that the, the Presbyterian Church, the PCA, the, the Presbytery for the Heartland area, has said that I am okay to preach within our denomination uh, without extra special permission. And so I'm kind of in this learning phase, and the idea is that I will I'll preach and uh, I'll hopefully preach the Word of God, and uh, then the Presbytery will take me under their wing, and they'll help me and guide me, as some of the elders in this church who've already heard this sermon have already done, so from when I t- the time I preached it at Presbytery to today. Um, now, the text I'm going to be preaching on is Titus 2, 11 through 15. That was the text I was given for licensure, and it was the text I was told to preach today. And if I were honest, it probably wouldn't have been the text I would have chosen seeing as Dr. Dominic Aquila just preached this text before this congregation a few months ago. And uh, as you can imagine, I've had certain vain thoughts of comparison, dreading the idea that my first sermon before this congregation would be on the exact same text that such a learned, experienced preacher would have just preached. Um, But as funny as that might seem, were this a situational comedy, it is not. Uh, Rather, this is where we gather to hear God's word and to respond to his great character and his mighty works with praise and worship. So I'd like to humbly remind you this morning, as I've had to remind myself the past few days, that despite my youth and my inexperience, this is the word of God. This is why I'm here in this robe, neutralized as an individual I'm not here to preach myself. I'm not here to put myself out there. This is the word of God. And so despite the weakness of this vessel, this is God's word. Now, it is probably that, uh, it is probable, I should say, that these are thoughts that might have been shared by Paul's recipient of this letter. The last few words of our text today are, let no one disregard you. And this might indicate that Titus had this kind of problem in his ministry. Perhaps there were people disregarding Titus in his ministry. So Paul is here writing to Titus, who has been called to serve Jesus' church in Crete, a people with a reputation that survives to this day. Every time a 13-year-old girl calls her 9-year-old brother a little Cretan, the Cretan memory lives on. And uh, as a certain Cretan prophet said that Paul will affirm in this letter, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is the church that Titus is serving. This is the community that Titus is serving. And right before our text, Paul is instructing on Titus, he's instructing Titus on what Titus ought to teach. Paul is instructing Titus to teach sound doctrine, a similar message to what he had for Timothy in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Under similar circumstances, he said, hold fast to a form of sound words. 
Now, after going through some of the particulars of the sound doctrine, Paul gets to the reason for such instruction, and that is our text today. So please hear the reading of God's holy word. Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now bear with me a minute. I want to take you to Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, God called his recently freed people standing at the foot of the mountain and said, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is just before God gives his people the law. Now imagine Moses coming down from the mountain with the tablets of stone. I'm confident you are familiar with the story from here. Uh, God has Moses consecrate the people. The people are to stand before the presence of an almighty God. They need to stand before, uh, they need to be consecrated before they stand in the presence of God. They need to be washed clean. They need their garments to be washed clean. They, uh, They needed the dirt and the filth from their garments, from their long travels through the wilderness. They needed to be consecrated on the outside and they needed to be consecrated on the inside because they were going to be in the presence of a holy God. And they were warned not to touch the mountain. And if they did, they would be stoned or shot with an arrow. There would be judgment that would come if they touched the mountain. And so, Uh, Moses has this back and forth with God about the people not touching the mountain. And Moses assures God they're not going to touch the mountain. And then finally, God gives his people the law. And so in this passage, we see how God, how God's people, who are his special possession, who have just been redeemed from slavery in Egypt, who are about to stand before the glory of the Lord, how they are called to consecrate themselves at the foot of the mountain. And they're warned that if they try to break through, they will be put to death. They're warned that if they try to break through, the Lord will break out against them. Then Moses receives the law of God, commandments that show man the good life and leave him condemned in his sin. They show man good and they leave him condemned in his sin. Sound teaching, if you will. Shortly after this takes place, Moses consecrates the people and the elders, and they confirm the covenant in blood. Then Moses goes up to the mountain, this time with Joshua, and he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people grow restless, and they demand that Aaron make for them gods which will go before them. According to Aaron's account, he takes their god, he takes their gold, and he throws it in the fire, and out comes a golden calf, just like all of our sin. Then he says to the peoples, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The next, uh, the text then says that Aaron built an altar before it and proclaimed, Tomorrow we shall feast to the Lord. 
and the people sat down and, to eat and drink and rose up to play. What are we to make of these people? Aaron, like Titus, is left in charge of an unruly bunch. <clears throat> these despicable, you might say, ungrateful people who've just been freed from their slavery, who've just been promised these good things. What are we to make of them? Immediately following this event, God's going to call these people a stiff-necked people. Now, if we take the stiff-necked people and we take the Cretans and we put these descriptions together, we have a stiff-necked group of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. These are God's special possession. Scripture says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Excuse me. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is the Jewish people at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is the Cretans that that, uh, Titus is ministering to. And this is us. And left to our own devices, we are corrupt doers of evil. So when we see this passage in Titus, it should be simple enough to understand why Paul sees fit to include it in his encouragement to a young man leading Jesus' church. This is why, what we are going to see from this passage, that despite man's sinfulness, despite our stiff-necked, lazy, evil, gluttonous lives, despite being sin being the only outflowing of our lives if we were left to our own devices, the epiphanies of our Lord Jesus, his appearances, establish and prepare us as God's treasured possession. The epiphanies of Jesus establish and prepare us as God's special possession as we live godly lives and possess a zeal for God's works today. Let us pray. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray that you enlighten our hearts and our minds as we hear your word today, that we might be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm so sorry. All right, so it is humanity's tendency when left to our own devices to pursue ungodliness and worldly passions. But we are going to see both in both of Jesus' appearances, in both epiphanies, as we will call them, that God does not leave us to our own devices, but he meets us where we are, when we are, that we might be his holy, consecrated, faith lived out, in works, possession. So let's return to our text. Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's start by considering the first epiphany. Our passage starts with the word for, and this indicates that everything that came before rests 
on what Paul is putting down here. Paul was essentially telling Titus in the previous 10 verses to teach the people to live godly lives and some of what those godly lives would look like. Now we are going to give the rationale for when he has, uh, for what he has presented. For the grace of God has appeared. I mean, grace is defined in many places in scripture. I think a really great verse on grace is Romans 5.8. But, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We are in opposition to God and we're saved by his grace. I was recently uh, listening to Charles Portis, uh, True Grit. They had a movie that came out not that long ago, but I was, I was listening to the audiobook of it and I was running and there's this, uh, I, had a, I had a stop and just kind of contemplate on this line that came out in it. The main character is this young girl and uh, she has this interaction with the merchant um, and, and so there's this exchange of goods, and then she has this little comment. And she says, you must pay for everything in the world one way or another. There's nothing free except the grace of God. You can't earn that or deserve it. And I just love that emphasis. You cannot earn the grace of God or deserve the grace of God of being in and of your own devices. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You don't inherit it because your parent was a monarch. You don't earn it because you worked real hard every day of your life. It's grace. Jesus died to save ungodly sinners from the wrath of God. That is grace. You are still a sinner. You were not a good person. You deserved wrath. You received life. That is grace. If you were left to your own devices, you would have chosen sin. You would have reveled in your life of sin and misery with no hope because, your own des- because of your own dev- devices, no hope because of your abilities or your will to de- uh, or your determination. Nothing would be enough because of your sin nature. But this grace has appeared. We're going to see this idea of appearing twice in our text. It comes from the word epiphaneo, where we get our word epiphany. I'm sure you hear it in the word. You all know what an epiphany is. It's that moment where you have this clarity of thought. Something connects and it makes sense. It's one of those aha moments. When we use the word today, it usually carries with it a soft notion of coming to this new knowledge somewhat independently or indirectly. You wouldn't say you had an epiphany if your cousin Fred said, hey, you big klutz, get off my foot. You'd say, oh, I'm standing on your foot. I just had an epiphany. No, that wouldn't be an epiphany. But if you're leaving your cousin's house and you're thinking to yourself on your drive home, why was my cousin Fred so mad? And you're like, oh, wait, I was standing on his foot the whole time. No wonder he was so mad at me. That would be more of an epiphany. There would be evidence there, something that points to this, uh, this revelation of knowledge. Now, Jesus' epiphany, you might say, is the most anticipated event in human history. People have been waiting for Jesus' epiphany since Genesis 3. This is, uh, God's people were waiting for the seed that would come and crush the head of the serpent that would reverse the curse and bring salvation for all the descendants of the woman. Paul uses a similar similar combination of words when he's instructing Timothy in, uh, in 
2 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. He uses this word epiphany here, this appearing here. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy nation, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now have been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's appearing of grace. We see it in this parallel passage, that the word is the noun form of the word appearing in our passage. God's gracious act of salvation, decreed by God before the ages, manifested in Jesus' epiphany. This was the coming of Jesus through the womb of the Virgin Mary, that he might save a people for himself. There are two things to mention about this word, uh, about this section, this appearing in grace that I think we should hold on to. Two things. This appearing of grace, this appearing of the grace of God brought salvation for all people. Now, a quick caveat here. All people doesn't mean all people are saved. We're not universalists. It means all in a more general sense. But so it brings salvation for all people. And two, this appearing of grace, the appearing of grace of God through Jesus, trains us. So it brings salvation and it trains us. This is what we're seeing in this appearing of grace. It trains us concerning the kind of life we now live. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. This is the first epiphany. The coming of Jesus trains us to live godly lives. Think of the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, concerned with their stomachs, so quickly forgetting the salvation of God. They grumble against Moses. Moses, what shall we drink? What shall we eat? Did you bring us into the wilderness just so that we should die? Then Moses, is when he's delayed on Mount Sinai, they go to Aaron, and they literally say to him, up, Make for us gods to go before us. Now, I don't know if this is a rude statement. It sounds kind of rude. Uh, but I do know it's blasphemous. This is not godly living. This is what becomes of them when they are left to their own devices. They sin and they rebel against God. Even a God who relieves them of their slavery and suffering. Let me tell you. If it can be this way for the Israelites who just crossed over the Red Sea, who are gazing up upon pillars of clouds and fire, who are literally eating manna from heaven, it can be this way for a Christianized American. It can be this way for many in our church. It can be this way for us. And were we left to our own devices, it would be this way for us. We would always be this way, no matter how much God blessed you no matter how much God saved you from the physical circumstances of your life, if there's no heart change, you would always sin and rebel. God could take you from rags. He could take you from bondage. He could take you from you know, uh, jail, from all sorts of hardships in life, and he could make you a king or a queen of the earth. And if that heart change was never there, you would still rebel because that is our nature. These were a saved people, a redeemed people, if you will. 
a people who covenanted with God and received a degree of God's promises. Now, they were redeemed, but they still had a need. They needed to be trained to be godly people. Now, don't hear me say, please don't hear me say, they needed to be saved from Egypt again. That's not what I'm saying. And we don't need to be saved. We don't need to be justified again. We don't need to be saved from our sin again. We are redeemed people. In verse 14, Jesus gave himself to redeem us. But as you can see, we too need to be trained to be godly people. That's what the Israelites in the wilderness needed. They needed to be trained to be godly people. That's what we need. They also need the first epiphany. I don't want to get ahead of myself there. But we have the first epiphany, and we need to be trained to be godly people. So we see the grace that has appeared, this epiphany, is not just for our justification, not just to make us right before God, but also for our sanctification. It is our training in godliness that we progress through lives. Paul is informing Titus that the teaching that he prescribed earlier, how the old men and old women, young men and young women are to live, how this teaching is dependent on the grace of God that has appeared. How they live their lives is dependent on the grace of God. He connects this teaching to the next thought by insisting that living this kind of life is for the present age. But we'll come back to that in a second. So in living a godly life today, you are waiting for something else, something more. Paul, uh, something that Paul describes as the glory of God. So let's look at the glory of God. Verse 13. We've talked about the grace of God, the epiphany that is the grace of God. Now we're going to look at the epiphany that is the glory of God. Waiting for our blessed, blessed hope, the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We see the word appearing again, another epiphany. And this time, it's not the appearing of grace, but it's the appearing of glory. So first, we we saw that the appearing of grace and, and we know this to be Jesus' coming to offer himself in the world as a ransom for the sins of many. And that included salvation. Uh, he appeared as the Passover lamb. And it was the incarnation which culminated in the death, resurrection, and ascension. Here we, are a res- we have our resurrected Savior ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, awaiting the hour that he will come again. And this hour of return is what Paul is referring to here. This is the appearing of glory. This is the second coming of Jesus. This is what we call the advent of Jesus that we celebrate before Christmas every year, that we anticipate the coming of Jesus, the advent. So when Jesus comes again, he will come as the glory of our great God and Savior. This glory will reflect God's faithfulness, and his justice. So the glory will reflect God's faithfulness and his justice. Like at Sinai, when Moses came from the mountain to find the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf, he came down with the promises of, promises of God and God's judgment. There was the promise of grace in the law and in the Decalogue, often called the summary of God's moral law. And on those tablets written by the finger of God were the words which the Son would perfectly obey and justify, or perfectly obey for justification of his people. 
And then furthermore, they were words which promised God's grace in restraining evil and showing man how to strive toward godliness. But Moses also returned, so he returned with that faithfulness, but he also returned accompanied by God's judgment. When Moses saw what was happening, he summoned those who were still faithful to God to strike down their brothers with the sword, killing 3,000 of them. Then the text says that God struck them with a plague because of their sin. The text doesn't explicitly say what the plague is, but in that return from the mountain, we could see both God's faithfulness and his justice on display. And in the same way, when Jesus comes, he will come in glory, faithfulness and justice on display. We can expect his faithfulness to fulfill the promises to his elect and judge the world. He will appear again, and when he appears, we can be assured that this appearance will be the, for the benefit of those who are in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of God, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive, who are left, who will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the promise to those who are anticipating the second coming. We don't have to fear those who have died in Christ. We don't have to, as the text says, grieve as those who have no hope. Because Jesus is coming and he's going to raise us up with him. In his second epiphany, he is our blessed hope. And here we see more as to why that is the case. Now, earlier in Titus, we see not just that hope that we have in his second return, but we see judgment that comes with that second turn. In Titus 1, Paul says, I mean, sorry, in Thessalonians, in Thessalonians 1, well, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, when uh, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And pay attention to this. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he returns, he's going to bless those who are in Christ. He's going to be faithful to those, fulfilling that promise, and he's going to judge those who are not in Christ. There's going to be judgment with his appearing in glory. <clears throat> we can expect the wrath of God against the ungodly. These are individuals who are persecuting his church. These are individuals who are rebelling against God. Paul says that God will visit upon these people who afflict his church vengeance. This is God's justice, redeeming those who are in Christ because of Christ's good works and punishing those who are not in Christ because of their evil works. 
And notice the punishment includes eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Our blessed hope in this appearing of Jesus, this second epiphany of the Lord Jesus, uh, this is our blessed hope in it. Encompassed in the punishment, God withholds his presence. They will never see God face to face as those who are in Christ have it promised in 1 Corinthians 13. We will see God face to face. We will be in his presence. When the nation of Israel and Judah rebelled against God, what kind of consequence were they warned about? They were warned that they were going to be removed from the promised land. They were warned that the temple was going to be destroyed. And these things took place. They were removed from the promised covenant land, and the temple of God was destroyed. And that was a temporal, glorious judgment of God. They were no longer tabernacling with God. Remember, they have the tabernacle before they have the temple. The tabernacle, it literally means tent. It is a place of dwelling. They dwelled with God in the wilderness. They were in God's presence in the wilderness. God was in their midst in the wilderness. They were tabernacling with God. Now the nation needed the tabernacle and the temple to purify themselves and the assembly of the people before the presence of a holy God. The messianic prophecies and the literature from the intertestamental period left the second temple Jewish people with the longing to overthrow their enemies and their conquerors and once again tabernacle with God the way they did in the days of David. They wanted to tabernacle with their glorious God again. Let's consider another mountain for a moment. In the synoptic gospels, Jesus scales a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And when they're on that mountain, they're visited by Moses and Elijah. And I'm sure you're all aware that this is Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus' face shone like the sun. And experience reminiscent of when Moses was on the mountain shortly after the golden calf incident. Moses' face reflected the glory of God. Jesus' face was the glory of God. In both cases, the people are afraid. The children of Israel are afraid. So Moses covers his face. The disciples are afraid. Peter makes what seems to be a strange statement. And he tends to get a bad rap from this account. He's often presented as this foolish babbler who, in his fear, says nonsense. He sees Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and he says uh, that he, he asks Jesus if he should build three tents. Now, granted, the gospel writers do say he did not know what he was saying. But that does not mean he was speaking nonsense. He knew what he was saying. He was just confused. What's more likely is Peter was interpreting these events through too much of a worldly lens. He saw this as further confirmation that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah and the Jews were about to once again tabernacle with their God. And so he says, we, should I build three tents? Instead, a bright cloud overshadows them and a voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The disciples are terrified, and Jesus says, rise, do not be afraid. Let's contrast this with our first account in Sinai. The first encounter on the mountain, the people needed to be consecrated before standing at the foot of the mountain. But here, the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus. The disciples saw this being fulfilled at Jesus' transfiguration, 
and it was confirmed in Jesus' resurrection. The first encounter on the mountain culminated in a more direct expression of God's law, specifically tailored to his covenant people. But here, the grace of God has appeared, giving men new hearts upon which God's law is written, where the Holy Spirit bears witness by and with his word. And in the first encounter on the mountain, we saw the instructions for an earthly tabernacle, a precursor to God dwelling in the midst of his people. But the grace of God has appeared. Emmanuel, God with us, has come. Jesus is God with his people. And a bright cloud revealed that God was real tabernacling is more than just an earthly tent, but has a spiritual or heavenly reality in addition to the earthly reality. Now, these realities that were being perceived by Peter, James, and John reveal something to us concerning our present situation. We are in this present age awaiting the blessed hope, the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know he will come and tabernacle with us physically as his spirit indwells us currently. We know we will, he will keep his promises because Jesus was raised from the dead. We know these things because we are his treasured possession. And in the same way, he heard the groanings of the children of Abraham in bondage in Egypt and rescued them and tabernacled with, him, with them. He will hear our groanings and he will finish the good work that he started in you in the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. If, there is, if their entry into the promised land was sure, how much more is ours in this present age knowing Jesus died and rose from the dead? So in this present age, we live in a tension. And I know this is by somewhat a theological buzzword that's thrown around quite a bit, but if there was ever a text for it, this is the text. We live in the tension of the already, not yet. The already not yet. We live in between the two epiphanies of Jesus, between grace and glory. We have been given new hearts. We have been justified. We have union with Jesus, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These are present spiritual realities for us here and now. We are also afflicted by our sin. We struggle with our sin. We wrestle against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is our present reality. And in this wrestling and struggling, we at times have victory over sin. And we are being trained in godliness. We are learning to overcome worldly desires. But how? How are we doing these things in this present age? If our natural inclination is rebellion, if there's no one righteous, not even one, how do we do this? If left to our own devices, we wouldn't do it. But the grace of God has appeared, and those who are in Christ have been justified and are being trained in godliness because the grace of God has appeared. But there are even concrete examples that Paul will give Titus here. And that brings us to verse 15. He says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We're here gathered on the Lord's day. And we have a saying in reform circles that you know, we're here, we sit under the ordinary means of God's grace. The preaching of his word and the administration of his sacraments. These are ordinary means by which God is making you more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. These are ways that you are becoming more and more godly. These are ordinary ways. They're not the only ways, but these are the ordinary ways that he does this. And part of what he's telling 
Titus here is connected to the ministry that's happening right now. Declare these things. This is part of that ministry. The, the word of God preached. So he says, declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, so it was a little weird when I preached this at Presbytery a couple of months ago because these really are instructions to leaders in the church. Leaders in the church, you are to do these things. You are to declare. You are to exhort. You are to rebuke. And I was preaching this passage, this text, this application to a bunch of elders in the presbytery who all have a lot more experience in life and ministry than I did. But this is the word of God, and this is what the word of God has for elders in the church. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke. Now, uh, I'm going to skip over I'm going to skip over some of this. So uh, let it suffice to say, declaring the word of God is extremely important. That's what, one thing that Paul is telling Timothy here. If you're in a church that doesn't declare the word of God, you're in a bad church. Exhorting is, expo- is extremely important. A pastor should make urgent appeals, and these can often be matters of life and death. They're to treat them with the urgency they deserve. They, th- this word includes a wide range of activity. where It could be comfort where comfort is needed, encouragement where encouragement is needed, plead, appeal, implore, entreat. These are what the elders should be doing. They should be exhorting with all authority. But the last one, the one I want to hit you a little harder with, is the rebuke with all authority. Because this one's tough. It's real tough to be rebuked in this present age, we live in, a, we live in a culture where you can hop in an automobile, you can drive 10 miles down the road, and worship at a church uh, that, you know, you've, and uh, sorry, I'm getting a little discombobulated here, but uh, essentially you could get in trouble at your church. You could be rebuked because of your sin, and instead of addressing your sin, you can hop in an automobile and just drive to another church. And nine times out of 10 in America, Nothing's going to happen. You'll just start worshiping at that other church and you'll never have to address those sinful issues. So rebuking is tough in our present age. So while Paul is, while Paul is writing to Timothy, Titus here to say this is for the elders, I want to say this is for us when we are rebuked because of our sin. We don't want to be, but we need to be rebuked. Our sin needs to be brought to light. Listen to what John says. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We don't want our sin exposed. And it's real tempting, real tempting to have your sin exposed and run away. When I was in my 20s, I was living in sin and I was hiding it from my church. And I used to question whether I was even a believer because of the weight of the sin and the nature of the sin. It, it weighed me down. It was heavy. I was grieved. I was in the Marine Corps at the time, and I was getting close to getting out, but I had this opportunity to hop on a boat, and so I took it. I signed up for it, hopped on a boat, and I thought to myself, I'm going to leave that sin behind. I'm heading, I'm going to be floating out in the middle of the ocean. I'm good, but my sin followed me to the boat. I couldn't just leave it in California, and, uh, and it followed me to some dark places, and I did some terrible things, and there was a chaplain on that boat who found out about these things. I told him I was a believer. I, I didn't show him I was a believer, but I told him I was a believer. And so this chaplain had felt the call and the oppression to come find me and to rebuke me. And I tried to dodge him, but you can only dodge so much in a boat before you get cornered. 
So he caught me and he rebuked me. And it's, it's phenomenal to me to this day. He didn't tell me anything I didn't know. He didn't tell me, hey, you know, this thing is a sin. I knew these were sins. But there was something about the way he was direct. He was firm. He was loving and he was kind. But he was direct. And it exposed my sin. And it genuinely helped me recognize the sin as the grief and the weight that was weighing me down. And it was a a step toward repenting and turning my life around. Accepting the grace of God and living a godly life. It was a step toward that, a really important step in my life because of the rebuke. Now, rebuke doesn't always go that way. We even have an example in Scripture where rebuke doesn't go that way. John, the Baptist, rebukes Herod, the Tetrarch, and he is thrown in jail because of his rebuke. But there's still the responsibility for church leaders to do it, to rebuke their people. And there's a responsibility for the church to graciously accept that rebuke if you are living in sin. That is your responsibility here. Now, beyond these, I want to say there, there's, there's more in this for you as well. Because you see that these are the responsibility for church leaders, and sometimes you'll have the opportunity to, to, to declare and to exhort and to rebuke. Uh, but then there are times when you're just going to participate in the life of the church. You are a believer in this congregation. And so what do you do as a believer in this congregation if your church isn't living up to these standards? I don't, wanna, I don't have too much time to dig, dig into this too much, but I want to say you live a godly life. That is the first thing you do. When you're, when you're attending a church that's not living up to these standards, you live a godly life. That's the first thing you do. Then you make sure that the church is teaching sound doctrine. Is the church teaching sound doctrine? Examine yourself as you're examining the word of God in light of sound doctrine. Uh, but, but first you live a God, you work on living a godly life. You make sure the church is teaching sound doctrine compared to this to the Nicene Creed, we here in the West, you know, in the PCA, we use the Westminster Confession of Faith. These are documents that show us what that sound doctrine is. And then um, if you feel like you're, you're at a good church, and this is a, this is a place where the Word of God is being preached, and they're faithful, but you think, man, maybe they're not exhorting or rebuking the way they ought, then maybe you have the responsibility to say something graciously, lovingly, you can rebuke your pastor for not rebuking enough, which might seem a little weird, but, um, but may, may, at that point, if you're living a godly life and you come to the pastor, most likely they're going to recognize an area of weakness and they're going to adjust. Now, Tony and Nathan, they've got pretty thick skin. They've been here for a long time. But I can tell you uh, there, are, there have been times in my short time here that I've seen, I've seen people come at them and... Uh, and they weren't, they weren't quite as gracious or loving or kind as I would have preferred. Now, maybe I'm a little protective of Tony and Nathan. Um, but I've seen, you know, I've seen them respond to these moments graciously. And I would say that if you feel like there's something that the church isn't doing, whether it's Redeemer or any church that you ever are going to attend, please examine yourself and graciously come to them and see how they are handling this responsibility as elders in the church. Examine yourself. Do it a hundred times, please, and then come to them graciously. 
So let, let's uh, close. I'm a little, I think I'm over time. I'm a little off my notes here. Maybe I got myself in trouble. Um, let's close uh, with a, just a recap of what these are. So what does Paul's letter of Titus have for us today? It is humanity's tendency, when we are left to our own devices, to pursue ungodliness and worldly passions. But we see that in both of Jesus' appearances, in both epiphanies, God does not leave us to our own devices, but he meets us where we are, that we might be his holy, consecrated, faith lived out by works, possession. And in light of these truths, we see church leaders are called to declare, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. And you have the opportunity to encourage the ministry of the church by living godly lives as you renounce worldly passions and ungodliness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have in Jesus. The hope we have as broken, sinful people to come together in your name to love one another, to encourage one another, to be built up through your word and to bring you glory. Lord, we anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus. Might he come fast. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.